Lara Venue is a translator of prose, creative non-fiction and the scholarly work from the French. She is the recipient of two Penheim Translation Fund grants, a French Voices Grand Prize and the French American Foundation Translation Prize. Her translations include novels by Zahia Rahmani, Fatima Das, Ahmed Bonani, Mohammad Lefta and Joy Sorman. In this episode, Laura talked about her work, literature coming out of North Africa, indie presses and about translation as an intimate personal experience. Thank you for accepting the invite, Laura. Of course, thank you so much for inviting me. Before we talk about uh, your work in detail, please introduce us to the novel Life Sciences. Of course. So, Life Sciences is a is a book I translated um about a year and a half ago. It's a uh, written by a contemporary French author named Joyce Sorman. She is one of my favorite authors to read and translate, so I'm always happy to talk about her. So as background, she tends to approach writing from a documentarian kind of angle, which means that she picks a certain domain, she performs just a painstaking amount of research, often immersive research, and then uses that to create a fictional work, which is often has a fantastical element of it. So life sciences is, is, is inspired from the medical sphere. She twists it. She has fable and legends that she uses. She she cites um, real-life clinical case studies, weird things in, in the history of medicine, and then blends those with old wives' tales. Um, the book is about a young girl named Neon Was who is afflicted with this mysterious illness, um, this burning feeling on her arms. And so the plot really is, is, is this young girl's quest to find a diagnosis, first of all, and then a cure. And then sort of zooming backwards, zooming, zooming out, the book is about um, the female experience of, of medicine, of being ill, of healing. Um, sort of Joyce Sorman really likes to get in, into how, you know, in the Middle Ages, this was the case. A hundred years ago, this was the case. Today, it's the case. Right. Um, the female experience in the medical world is very different from the male experience. So it's basically the, the backbone of the book. When I was reading it, I was wondering whether it is really about the illness that she's talking about or the age-old burden the women carry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you could say it that way. It's 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 also about narrative. It's about about stories, about how these stories are passed down through the ages through women, through the female generations of a family and how we're told certain things as women. We're taught certain things. How do we absorb those, those stories and then how do we transmit them? So in this case, through the story of Ninon, it's sort of, you know, these are the stories she heard. This is what she was taught. And she makes an active decision to not believe those stories or to change those stories. So that's another um, pretty, pretty vital part of it. The ending, the ending, I was really wondering whether it is uh, really the cure that she got or uh, is it an indication that uh, she's finally liberated? Exactly. I mean, in the end, the cure doesn't really matter, actually. Yes, cure really doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. Could you please read a paragraph or two from both uh, French and uh, English versions? Yeah, I am happy to. So I picked a paragraph. This is about halfway through the text. This is when Ninon is 
being forced to endure just yet another medical exam, sort of being treated like an object or a scientific curiosity, rather. Um, I'm going to start with the French. It's a short paragraph. And then I'll do the English. And I always say when I do readings, I hope that, that people can hear a similar cadence or a similar rhythm, even if you don't understand or speak French. Le plus jeune des trois médecins, dont ne saurait dire à cet instant si plaisante, propose alors d'ouvrir Ninon, puisque toute lecture externe comme radiologique a échoué. On voit enfin ce qui se passe dans la boîte noire de ce corps, truffouillé tranquillement à l'intérieur, percé l'énigme de cette magnifique allodinie extensive, au contour jamais répertorié par la littérature médicale, venir à bout de ce qui résiste. Car plaisanterie ou pas, je n'aime pas que ça lui résiste. Se vit comme un soda de la santé lancé sur le corps de malade, comme son champ de bataille. Son ninon devenu le théâtre des opérations. Paysage complexe, surface travaillée de creux et de bosses, de déclivités. Un terrain sur lequel déployer les forces, chaque médecin, chaque spécialité, représentant un corps d'enfanterie. C'est une rêverie de jeunes internes. C'est également ainsi que ninon son visage. Un territoire sur lequel on, on découdre. Elle trouve qu'on se, se bat pas assez. I'll do the English now. Always a little easier. The youngest of the three doctors, who may or may not be joking in this moment, suggests opening Ninon up. Since every external and radiological exam has failed, to finally see what's going on in this body's black box, to peacefully rummage around her insides, to penetrate the mystery of this magnificent and extensive allodynia that has never been categorized in medical literature, to finally be done with this thing that's resisting. Because joking or not, the young resident doesn't like being resisted. He sees himself as a soldier of health hurling himself onto the patient's body as if onto a battlefield, onto Ninon, the theater of operations, a complex landscape surface worn by hollows and bumps, crevices and slopes, a terrain on which to deploy the forces, each doctor, each specialty representing an infantry corps. The young resident is daydreaming, but it's what Ninon is imagining as well, a battlefield where they'll fight it out, and she feels like they're not fighting hard enough. You mentioned it uh, briefly in the beginning. Uh, could you please talk about uh, author Joyce Hormon? Of course. So the nice thing about her is she kind of defies categorization. She, I don't know how she picks the, the domains, but they're very different from book to book. So in this book, it's um, medicine, history of medicine. Another book, it'll be the history of butchery. Another book will be about uh, animal captivity, about animals in zoos. Um, and so she kind of has this mix of, of really... Uh, of technical writing, really precise, almost scientific, cold writing, which then she mixes with this long flowing style that can be poetic at times. So it's this sort of ongoing um, ups and downs and, and balance and balance of writing. I would say that at this point, I'm very familiar, comfortable with her style just because I've been reading her for so many years. And now I've, I've translated two of her novels. I think that her voice is maybe the closest to my own uh, authorial voice so that when I translate her, it's, there's an ease. I mean, it's always, it's always hard to translate a book. I wouldn't say it's easy, but there's an ease when I translate her writing. What is the second book about uh, that uh, you translated? 
So the second book is actually was published earlier in France. It's called Comme une bête. Mm -hmm. uh, the English title is going to be Tenderloin. And it's it's the same sort of process. She immersed, her, immersed herself in the world of butchery, sort of this fading craft in France. Um, and it's about a butcher who loses his mind. He's so obsessed with becoming a butcher that he sort of loses sight of the line between what he's eating, what he's butchering, what he's cutting into and himself. And that's what I sort of was referring to when I said fantastical elements. It's this very well-researched book about this um, tradition in France, um, but then it just sort of goes off the rails often, which I love. France, uh, the story of a childhood uh, by Zahir Rahmani is your first, uh, is your first uh, book-length translation. Tell us about your transformation from being a reader uh, to a translator. So very different book. Um, this was kind of a, an interesting experience because, so like you said, this was my first literary translation. This was my beginning into the, into the field. Um, it was unusual. And so it kind of made me think naively that all translations would go like this. But basically, I, I read this novel when I was living in France a few years before I went to grad school in the U.S. where I studied translation. And the book, I'll just summarize briefly the book for those who aren't familiar. It's uh, written by the daughter of a harki. Harki are the term for Al Al Algerian auxiliaries in the French army during the Algerian war. That means Algerians who were fighting with or helping the French, um, often because they were coerced to or forced to. So it's obviously a very complex history. And this book is one of few published in France to talk about that history. So I read this book. It stuck in my mind. I love this style. And then I translated it in graduate school as my translation thesis. At one point, I applied for a translation grant. It's called the Penheim Translation Fund Grant, which if I may, I would just recommend that all translators think about applying for that grant. Um, there's no restrictions on nationality or anything. I got the grant. Great. <laughs> Huge boost for me in confidence. Um, and then... Not long after that, I was contacted by a publisher. They asked for a sample. They wanted to, trans to publish it, and I signed a translation contract. And I thought, this is great. You just have to find books you like that resonate with you. Maybe apply for a grant, and then the publishers just just works out. So that that's what I thought in the beginning. Obviously, that's not been the case every time. Tell me about the collaboration you had with the writer. Uh, with Zaya, um, you know, it was, I think the whole experience was unusual. Uh, because this was my first book, I had so many questions and I was so excited <laughs> that I contacted Zaya and wanted to talk to her about the entire book and just, you know, ask her a million questions, which she was, she was very nice. I actually was in Paris. I, I got to meet her and ask her the questions in per person. Um, since then, I've kind of drawn back from the process because oftentimes the author is, is somewhat removed from the book by the point that the translator is getting to it. You know, uh, lots of times they don't remember. Lots of times they didn't make deliberate choices and you're, you're bugging them about it. So um, it was a very, I wouldn't say collaborative, but I was bugging Zaya a lot. And um, she was very nice about it, <laughs> the whole process. And since then, I've, I've kind of calmed down a little bit in terms of, of reaching out to authors. A point you just made, uh, 
this is very interesting actually that uh, the writers uh, they don't make uh, deliberate choices uh, while writing there was a there was a reference in that book to i think it was like a white eagle some sort of reference like that and i couldn't figure out what it meant and i i researched it and i was like there was this plane that crashed in the 1970s in france with the same title of the plane and that sort of had a you know a a, a link to the to the story being told and i check with Zaya and she was like, oh, no, I didn't mean, I didn't mean eagle. I meant some other animal. I don't even know. That's a mistake. So just sometimes we get so, you know, obsessed with details and authors are there just to remind us, no, just, just writing my book. If you see the body of work that you created, most of the books, uh, they're from, uh, the source is from North African literature. I was pretty intent when I was starting out that I wanted to find and translate writers of North African origin. I want to note that I'm, I mean authors writing in French. I don't speak Arabic. I don't understand Arabic. Um, and that intention is very much related to my own background, my own upbringing. So people tend to think that I'm French because of my last name, Villeneuve. I'm actually, I'm half Tunisian. I'm half American. So I was born in Tunisia and I left when I was four. My family and I moved around a little bit, and I ended up in the U.S. when I was eight, and I was raised in the U.S. So my mother tongue is English. I speak English with both my parents, and then French kind of came later later on. But because I have that that background, I've always had this, I guess, longing, you could call it, to deepen or maintain that connection with Tunisia. And then in terms of my career, that has very clearly manifested just in a curiosity and Tunisian writers, but also writers of Moroccan or Algerian origin. Um, I wanted to, I wanted to paraphrase something. One of my professors once said to me, I'm going to paraphrase it because I can't find it. Actual quote. Um, but this is a, a former professor and mentor of mine whose name is Alison Waters. She also translates from French. And she said that she is drawn to writing to voices at intersections. And I love that, and I want I want to steal it or borrow it, because I think it's so much better than saying voices at the margins, because when you're in France at least, which is you know the 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 world I know, North African voices and also Sub-Saharan African voices are considered marginalized voices or voices at the margins, and I think intersections is such a better way to say it. You know, it kind of shifts the center, which is kind of what my objective is as well. Um, so I love that. I love, and, I, and I'm, I'm stealing, just stealing it. Voices at the intersections. So on translating uh, Mohammed Leftas, uh, Captain Nima's last battle, you said uh, it was a transcendental experience. I mean, it sounds kind of grand grandiose, right? But I do think there is something magical or miraculous about capturing a person's voice. Um, embodying that voice somehow and then recreating it for other people um as i wrote in that essay this was a very specific context this is the first year of covid um so isolation i'm in a small apartment with my partner and our three-year-old son this was um the winter a winter in washington dc so very gray very rainy and the book is very much a placed in the, the sweltering, sweaty heat of Cairo. Okay? So there's just that disconnect already. Um, and then the, the big thing that was difficult for me was that I was pregnant at this time. So I had a very short timeline. I had six months. 
And I think this is the first time that I felt this timeline just bearing down on me because I had, I had to meet it, you know, biological imperatives. I can't miss this deadline. Um, and so I was just like in this weird, acutely um, physical state. And I'm changing this acutely physical novel in a very different way. This is a book about an older, an older man who is having an affair with a younger but teenage boy, basically. It's very sexual. It's very graphic. It's very explicit. There's a lot going on. It's about someone who's been, been, you know, hiding these homosexual impulses his whole life and is finally giving, letting them out. So it's a, it's a very difficult, difficult, important book. And I'm sort of having my own difficult stuff too. And I just got, I just felt stuck. I felt really stuck. Um, I was struggling with it and trying to find the voice, trying to find something to connect to. Um, and so my solution to that was just doing homework, <laughs> sort of my, my background. I'm such a nerd. So I was like, let me just do as much homework and let me just read as much as possible. So I was reading these like dissertations. There's actually a lot of several dissertations about Mohammed Lefta for some reason in both French and English. So I was reading these dissertations. I want to cite one of them in particular because it's a scholar who was really helpful to me named um, Murad. So I'm just reading all these, all these texts about him. And then at some point I said, okay, like I have, I have three months left. I have two months left. I have six weeks left. Like, let me figure this out. Um, and I went back into the writing and there wasn't like this one aha moment, Eureka moment, but there was a point where I said, oh, oh my gosh, something's working. I get, I get it. Something about his voice is coming, coming through to this, this very pregnant female body. Something, something is connecting. So that's what I mean by trans transcendental. And I don't know, I hope, I hope some of that comes through when people read the translation. That's, that the, that's the goal anyway. Translation, you're trying to get into the skin of the character. What kind of emotional impact uh, it will have on you? Um, what kind of emotional impact? Uh, not always good, to be honest. Not always a good impact. Um, for whatever reason, I've translated some very intense books in the past few years, which, you know, puts you kind of in a dark, grim headspace. Um, but I wouldn't say it's detrimental to my personal life where it's to a lasting degree. Um, I sometimes wonder if other translators get as immersed in a text as I do. Because I feel sometimes I'm borderline obsessive about it. But I, I'm inclined to think a lot of translators do do get because you're so close to the text, you're so close to the, to the voice of an author that you kind of have to get wrapped up in, in, in the story somehow. Um, I, I've written about translating the hospital. That was a weird sort of convergence of my personal life. I ended up in the hospital while I'm translating this book about this narrative trapped in a hospital. Um, and you know, that's, that's a very dark grim book as well, but it's also funny. So I felt like I really embraced that experience of translating it. I really enjoyed it stylistically. It was challenging. It was interesting to me. So um, in terms of emotional impact, I kind of, it was, it was helpful to me as I was going through this weird medical experience in my own life to have that to go back to. Uh, a book that I've written about also translating is Born of No Women by Frank Buys is, was much tougher. The book is about, um, it's about assault. It's about emotional and physical abuse. It's about this idea of bystanders seeing violence inflicted against women and not doing anything. So um, it was really difficult to translate. Um, I definitely was in a dark headspace during that. And I think that was also during COVID. So that, that didn't help. 
I, I want to say that I think carefully before I agree to do those texts. Um, there needs to be some sort of connection that I feel with with the author, with the work. And in this case, I, I found that we approached this these themes of violence against women in a way that didn't feel exploitative to me, which felt cautious and considered. So that's why I felt comfortable taking it on. Um, I don't always take on books like that. I've, I've passed on, a, on, on really intense books that, that just felt too much for me, too heavy for me. Um, and then I'm also deliberate about trying to find books that are more joyful, that are maybe more focused on, a, on language or stylistic experimentation, like Joyce Sorman, because I do need to, to take care of my mental health as a translator um, when I'm choosing what I do. How much of your time you spend on reading? Yeah, reading takes so much time. And I think I'm like most translators. I wish I had more time to read. I wish I had weeks and weeks and weeks on end just to read books. Um, I will say that I have a two-year-old. So really bites into my reading time. Like, honestly, it really eats away at that. Um, but I, I try to read when I can. I try to have something on my phone, you know, an ebook on my phone. And I, you know try to find stuff in bookstores. I try to research. I try to ask authors. I always ask authors I work with, what are you reading? So I feel like that will somehow lead me on the magical path to this, my next work. Musicality of the original text, bringing it into translation. What has been your experience? Musicality is very important, of course. I think that other translators probably approach it earlier on in the process. I've read about other translators writing about that, and I, it's often um, poet translators or translators who have a mu musical affinity, which I do not have at all. So for me, when I get into a text, it's, it's much more semantic. It's just about figuring out the meaning, untangling the words. And then I find that the musicality comes in sort of organically the closer I get to the, to the final draft. And I do lots of drafts. I do tons and tons of drafts. Um, so I feel like just by editing and tweaking and polishing and, and, and carving down, um, there's a point where the, 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 the rhythm or the beating of, of, of a text usually comes through. Um, and I, it, it does depend on the book. And I feel like there's maybe one or two books that made me think about it from the beginning. Um, so I'm going to, I translated a book a few years ago called The Last One by Fatima Das, which is, is very, um, musically influenced. She's heavily influenced by rap music in particular. And then on top of that, there's this sort of um, incantatory element. She, The book is in part about her struggles to reconcile her Muslim faith with her sexuality. And so she she incorporates prayers into the book, which adds a chant-like element. So I will say in that instance, I had to think about musicality from the very start um, instead of waiting sort of for it to magically emerge through the process. How do you find French in that regard? Because uh, certain languages, uh, they sound so different that it becomes really difficult to bring the same sonic quality into translation. Um, I think I'm lucky because French and English sort of have similar patterns, linguistic patterns. They're not so far away from each other that you're starting um, from scratch. So I think France has its like inherent musicality they tend to use much more words. They tend to be a little bit more long-winded. So part of translating is is massaging that into a form that works better in English, but still keeping whatever the inherent musicality of an author's voice. Um, a lot of the books I translate um, 
tend to incorporate some sort of influence of Arabic or another language or Kabul. Um, that's not to say they necessarily are writing in Arabic, but a lot of these writers that I'm working with have that influence in the back of their practice. And that is that comes through in the French. And so my challenge is to sort of make that come through in the English. So then you're sort of adding multiple layers. How am I, how am I making the influence of Arabic on French apparent in English? I guess uh, they must be using some Arabic words too. Yeah. Yeah, there's and I love I love works like that. I love works that that bring in other languages that, that explore that either clash or sometimes it's more harmonious. <laughs> Oftentimes it's a clash of languages. Mohammed Lefta does that very overtly. Uh, Zaya Rahmani does that with Kabul. Fatima Daz does it with Arabic. So I love that. And oftentimes those writers, they'll translate the Arabic or the, whatever the language is themselves. So I'm just translating their translation, which of course is like the game of telephone. You're just getting further and away from the language with every step. Tell us about your experience of uh, pitching your work to publishers. Well, all translators know that we spend so much time, unpaid time, doing this, right? We The reading that you mentioned and then preparing samples. And then compiling these, I guess, submission proposals, and it's it's really time consuming, and sometimes it pays off, sometimes it doesn't. I I think generally the the more you progress in your career, the more luck you have. <laughs> um, but things like the Penheim grant, things like that, really help to to get um, people familiar with your work. Um, there's an example I like to share with emerging translators. I don't know if it's reassuring or alarming, but um, I think the novel I mentioned previously by Joyce Sorman, Come in Bits, Tenderloin, um, I started pitching that book 10 years ago. And it's a weird book. I think it's probably hard to market for most publishers. I'm sure my pitches were not great at the time. And I'd pretty much given up on it. And it's, you know, I finally translated it this year. It's going to be published next year by a press called Restless Books. So you know, that took me 10 years. Obviously, I'm doing much, many other things, but it's a long game, right? <laughs> just have to like plug away at it. Arthur's uh, reputation also, I think uh, it will carry some weight. Uh, but uh, in that regard, uh, most of your work is on uh, North African literature. So I don't think it's an easy thing for you in that sense. Now, most of the books uh, you translated, uh, they are published by independent presses, indie presses, other press, restless books and uh, new directions. Please talk about the contribution of uh, indie presses uh, in uh, literary translation. I mean, thank goodness they're, they're here, right? I think that they just, they take chances on the sort of the weird books, on the books that are difficult to categorize. You know, I was talking about Joyce Sermon before she came. It's hard to put her in a genre. Um, you know, they have much smaller budgets, but they also are just more willing to take risks. So I've I've been really lucky to have, especially in the beginning, these 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 presses who are willing to publish these books that I don't think would have been taken on by more mainstream presses. I consider myself kind of mid-career, which means that luckily, thankfully, I don't have to do quite so much pitching. I don't have to do quite so much selling, even though. I still have to do a lot of them. Um, but um, you mentioned the other press, and I've done a few books for them in recent years. And that's sort of been a surprising development in my career. And something that I find with them is that they just, they they have, they trust me. They have confidence in with me. 
in me and my work, which is such a nice feeling. And it kind of takes away one element of it, which is kind of feeling like you have to justify yourself or justify this is why this book should be translated, but also this is why I should translate it. So because we've sort of re- developed a working relationship and they have that trust in me, I, I feel like I can kind of focus on what I really care about, which is not the selling or the marketing, but on the actual translating. BIPOC translators uh, mentorship that you offer. Please tell us about it. Yeah. So this is kind of something new for me. I've been doing this for a few years. Um, and there's two parts to it, really. So first part is that I had these wonderful mentors when I was starting out. Um, two professors in particular, I named one of them earlier, Alison Waters, another one, Emmanuel Altel, who were my teachers and just huge sources of encouragement and guidance. And also very concretely, <laughs> helped me find opportunities. You know, they would recommend my name when things came up. And I think that's so critical. It's not just about encouraging people and saying, you're doing great. You're going to, you know, you got this. It's also, hey, this came up and I recommended your name and you're, you might get an email. So heads up like that is that's critical, right? It's crucial. And the other part of the, of the mentorship idea is that um, I'm going I'm to speak here about the United States because that's where I'm from and that's what I know. But the world translation is overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly um, sort of a microcosm of the publishing industry as well, you know. And there's all these these barriers to entry, um, all different kinds. So there's financial barriers to entry, educational, and it just makes something that's a small, tough field that much harder to break into. So I think, I mean, I know there's a lot. There's several um, translators who offer these kinds of mentor- mentorships, and that's what I was inspired by in this idea of just, you know, in a very small way, helping make this field more diverse and and more welcoming and expand the voices and the and the kinds of texts being being translated. Um, so I, during the pandemic, I, I mentored two translators who are both of Tunisian origin. Um, if I may, if any publishers are listening, they are working on a Tunisian novel, right, still available. I'm happy to put people in touch with them. Um, see, I'm always, I'm always trying to help. <laughs> There are these great, these great young translators. Um, and then right now, I just started mentoring a Canadian translator who is interested in um, emerging authors and Quebecois literature. So the goal is to do this once a year for free, obviously. Um, and I always tell my mentees that I am not always responsive immediately by email, but I'm like, it's like a lifetime guarantee. I will respond at some point. <laughs> Yes, yeah. I usually I'm I'm not always quick quick on the quick on the response, but I'm always happy to help when I can. So tell us about uh, your recent translation, the most secret memory of uh, men. Hmm. Uh, where should I start? <laughs> um, One interesting thing about uh, the book is that uh, it is about uh, search a quest, which is uh, one of uh, my favorite uh, themes to read. And the other thing is about uh, the book is it's about a writer, and again you dedicated uh, this book to a writer. Interestingly, so what's the backstory? There's there's a big backstory. This is the biggest book I've probably translated, just in terms of how long it is, how complex it is. I I think the French is about five hundred pages. Um. And then just for those who aren't familiar with it, the, the novel takes place across different time periods in several different locations. It uses different perspectives, uses different narrative styles. Um, 
so there's a lot going on. He, as you said, he, it's a book about, about searching, about a quest, um, and also about writing about what literature means, about why we bother reading, and in this case, why, why bother writing, right? Um, and then the book is big just because it was, it was very high profile in France. It, it won the Prix Goncourt in 2021, which is France's biggest literary prize. The author, Mohamed Bougarsar, is the first writer from Sub-Saharan Africa to win this prize. So it just got massive coverage. It was a huge critical success, huge commercial success. So it was a new feeling to have that kind of sense of pressure or, or maybe responsibility is the better word um, as I'm going into this book. Basically, Muhammad was inspired by the real life story of a Malian writer named Yambo Wulagwem, who was this huge success in, in, in France. Um, he wrote this masterpiece. And then got embroiled in a plagiarism scandal and basically was exposed from the, the Parisian literary scene and went back to Mali and was never heard from again, more or less. Um, so Mohammed was inspired by that story. Um, and he wrote this novel, which is kind of, it's very meta. It's about a young Senegalese writer who becomes obsessed with another writer based on Wollegan Gwem. Um, and so the basic plot, it's hard to distill it down, but it's this author trying to find out what happened to this other African writer who, who was exiled or exiled himself. Um, but then it's also this expansive, you know, investigation of, of like we said, what is literature? What, what does it matter? Does it, does it matter anything given how terrible this world is? Um, and then it's also kind of a funny book. It's, it's you know, Mohammed loves um, taking conventions and stereotypes and twisting them. It's a very hard poke at the French literary establishment and how African writers are marginalized or forced into writing a certain way. And he doesn't spare anyone. He also criticized African writers and readers and publishers and editors, just everybody. Everyone's everyone's getting poked at. So it's it's just a sprawling novel. It's It's beautiful. It's really, really beautiful. So why bother writing? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's not on the same scale as as these writers I'm working with, but uh, writer writing has kind of become this other surprise. Of course, in my translation career, um, it's kind of evolved alongside translation. I used to just always not even a formal journal, but just constantly writing about translation or or working through things, and over the years, formalizing those thoughts and and writing these essays. Um, and it's not always. It's not always a comfortable feeling to write. And, and to be perfectly honest, sometimes I, I write these essays and then I hesitate before putting them out in the world. You know, some of them are very personal. I tend to write about how translating a certain text has intersected with a certain event or moment in my life. And that's not always comfortable, right? Um, I think for me, it's just, um, it's my way of understanding things, you know? So why bother? I don't know. I believe uh, translation is a serious uh, form of uh, creative writing. Uh, why do you translate? I think that you're right that translation is a form of writing. It's certainly far more than just a craft. I don't think... I think the question of ownership and authorship is interesting. And I don't think they're on exactly the same level, which I've, I've, I've read some translators argue for. Um, but it's definitely its own writing, I don't like the word product, experience. Um, and for me, writing and translation blend into each other and feed each other. 
and translation is this immensely creative, inspiring experience. And I find that it has tended to my writing. That makes sense. It's really encouraged it. I feel like I've learned how to write by translating. Um, I think that obviously linguistic fluency is critical to a translation, but this is not my argument. I've, I've heard other translators say this, but you have to be able to write. That's really the heart of it, right? Thank you. Thank you, Lara, for such a wonderful and lovely conversation. Thank you. All right. Okay. Thank you, you too.